From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Colorado Healing Fund was created to fill in gaps when there is a mass criminal event, from plane tickets to funeral costs. It's raising money for both Boulder and Colorado Springs. We've never been activated and reactivated this quick in succession. It's been less than two months, and it's both really heartbreaking and unfathomable that it would be this quick in succession in Colorado. An update on the money raised, plus the story of the woman who runs the fund. She's been involved with victim advocacy since she was a kid. Then, artist Jordan Castile. We are, I think, very frequently walking past people that we could have an opportunity to say hello to. So the paintings are my way of slowing people down and making room for others. Her art's on the cover of Time. As a member, you are essential because you help make this statewide news and music service possible. Nearly 50% of CPR members are sustaining Evergreen members who keep programming strong month after month. It's easy and affordable to join them and start giving monthly today. If you're already giving, please consider increasing your existing gift by a few dollars a month. Thank you for keeping the news and music going strong. Make your gift now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It had never happened before, the Colorado Healing Fund being activated in such rapid succession, first for the Boulder supermarket attack, then about a month and a half later for the shooting at a Colorado Springs mobile home park. The nonprofit Healing Fund works with victims' advocates on the ground to help meet immediate needs, think funerals and airfare, as well as long-term ones like mental health support. Jordan Finnegan is the fund's executive director, and this type of work runs in her family. Her mother helped in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing. So did her grandmother. And Jordan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get a top-line update. First, how much have people given towards the Boulder campaign and maybe talk about what the money's paid for? Yeah, so so far, um, uh, it's been around $4.3 million has come in for the Boulder supermarket tragedy. $4.3 million. Yes, it's it's a astounding, humbling, really incredible. Um, a million of that was from uh, King Supers themselves. They, they wanted to make sure to really support this community and their associates and everyone who was affected, the shoppers. Um, But then the rest of it has come from individual donations or corporations and foundations. Um, I think we have over probably 18,000 individual donors that have given. Does money continue to come in for Boulder? Money has continued to come in. I mean, it's definitely slowed, but um, it's continuing to trickle in. There's definitely donations every day. And there's a few fundraisers that are continuing to go on right now where we'll be getting money in. Okay. And what has some of that money paid for thus far? Yeah. So... In a response with the mass tragedies, there's the acute, the intermediate, and the long-term. So we're kind of coming to the end of the acute phase. And within that, so far, the money is paid for um, helping to support family coming in for the funerals and memorials. That was really important um, for flights, uh, hotels, um, rental cars. That was really key. There's also um, rent has been paid for a lot of individuals just because financially we want to be able to support them 
um, in this in this really emotional hard time. And I imagine that some of them aren't necessarily able to work or going to work because of the trauma that they have suffered. Absolutely. Um, I think a key piece too here is that there's the ten families of the individuals who were um, killed, but there's also the different concentric circles of victims. So it it extends from those immediate ones, the ten families to um, the individuals who were in the line of fire to the just the people who were in the grocery store at the time mm-hmm. or in the parking lot um, and and their their individuals. So I think right now it's maybe close to almost like 350 or 400 people who have been named as as immediately impacted by this particular shooting. You activated the fund as well, as I said, for that deadly shooting at the Colorado Springs Mobile Home Park. How much has been raised for that campaign so far? As of last night, um, only around $8,200, but that's through the Colorado Healing Fund. There are, um, there's a Facebook, which uh, a friend of the family has done, but that's only raised about $60,000. Um, and so I, it's definitely a big difference compared to what came in for Boulder. I mean, an enormous difference. Yeah. So $4.3 million, as you said, for Boulder. Let me just make sure I have this right. Just over 8,000 for Colorado Springs. Yeah. And I think the better metric is also um, we're about a, a little over a week out from when the when the tragedy happened in Colorado Springs. When we were a little over a week out from Boulder, it was a million dollars had come in. So, oh was that the King Subers money? No. Okay. That was individual donations. That was individual donations. So very much lopsided in this regard for these two different campaigns. Mm-hmm. And yet the needs in Colorado Springs are great. Will you describe the needs as you know them thus far? Yeah. Um, so it's it's essentially one, one family, but it's three families within them. Um, there are three children who have been orphaned, and there's two two children who have lost their mother. There's a grandmother who's sort of taking on responsibility for the majority of those children. Um, I know that there, there are needs. Um, we've helped to pay already for part of the funeral, burial um, needs, also for family um, coming in to support as, as they're continuing to go on. But I know in the long term, there's going to be a lot of mental health support that's going to be needed because the state only pays for about a year of mental health support. Mm. So this is money that might stretch years Years. from the event. I want to say the Colorado Healing Fund was created in 2018 with seed money from the state attorney general's office. And its goal is to fill in financial gaps when there is mass tragedy. Were you ready for events in such rapid succession like this? I mean, emotionally, no, absolutely not. Um, but yes, financially, we were ready. Um, having that initial grant allowed us to have that seed money so that we could give. The fact that we've already given $75,000 to the um, Colorado Spring shooting is a testament to that because we were able to pull that from that initial seed money. Seed money from the Attorney General's yeah. office. I'll say that this is a nonprofit. It's guided by a board that includes a former state attorney general and the longtime principal of Columbine High School. The fund is meant to fill in the gaps when there is a mass criminal event. Of course, we've seen two of those in Colorado in rapid succession. First, the Boulder supermarket attack, and then that mass shooting at the Colorado Springs Mobile Home Park. The fund has been activated for both. 
it is a bit lopsided, with about $4.3 million having been raised for the Boulder event, but just over 8000 so far for Colorado Springs. Jordan Finnegan, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Early in life, you were exposed to victim advocacy through your mother, I know the Oklahoma City bombing looms large in your memory. Just tell us about that time. Yeah, so uh, I was in fifth grade when that trial came to Denver. Um, And my mother is a victim's advocate, and she was called in to basically coordinate victim services and the media around the trial. So she set up what was then called the safe haven, um, which is now typically referred to as like the, the resiliency center, the family Resource Center. And these are mounted after events. So there's a version of this in Boulder and a version of this in Colorado Springs. Yes, there's a version in Boulder. The Colorado Springs one is, um, it's more community-based, which Mm. is really wonderful. And that's sort of coming together right now. Um, But it's also, it shifts a little bit in how it, how it happens when the criminal trial is, is happening as well, because the services are a little bit um, a little bit different, yeah. and there's different people coming in, but it's it's all generally just to support everyone who's going through that. Yeah, so just to be clear, the Oklahoma City bombing obviously happened in Oklahoma, but it, it uh, the trial was here in Denver in federal court. Yeah. And and so you remember this time, and, and you were even involved to some extent. Yes, yeah. Um, it was, it's very clear in my memory. Um, I would wait in line in the morning at like 6 a.m. to hold a place for the victim's families so that they could have a seat in the trial every day. And then I'd go to school. Um, it you would hold their place in line. Yeah, so they didn't have to get up as early because they were going through their own emotional um, roller coaster and, and healing. And so I, as someone who wasn't going through that, was able to do that for them. Um, also, since they were away from home and the trial was happening through the holidays, we had victims' families um, and survivors over at our house for Christmas um, in order to just support them and provide a, a space of, of family and um, warmth in, in, the, in that tough time. Do you remember that victim support center? The safe haven, yeah, I remember it clearly in my, in my mind, yes, going in there. And I, I remember there was a, a pastor there named Father Gary who was really important for a lot of, a lot of individuals and um, I'm not personally very spiritual, but it was helpful, I think, for them. And, and he was a really a, a clear um, rock for, for a lot of people. You would sometimes do your homework there after school. Yes, I would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would sit there while my mother was, was helping and supporting a lot, of, a lot of individuals. Your family happened to be, I believe, in Nairobi, Kenya, when the embassy was bombed there in, what was it, 1998. It killed mm-hmm. more than 200 people. Mm-hmm. What's that story? Yeah, so we happened to be there for a family vacation specifically so that my mother could have a break. Um, and she's been, she had been working on the trials. Um, and we happened to choose that day not to go to the American embassy to meet um, one of our tour, tour guides um, for the rest of our trip because we just arrived and instead to go swimming in the swimming pool. And then we heard and felt the bomb um, go off because it wasn't too far from where we were. I saw the paper flying over the the fence into the swimming pool and the um, the building next to us rocking. And we had no idea what had happened. And then all of a sudden we realized that a, a bomb had gone off like just a few miles away. And um, we didn't know if we had to be evacuated from 
from the country or what was going to happen next. I'm somehow picturing your mother springing into action. Very much so, yes. In a way where me as a a young kid didn't even really, I was almost like this again, you know, because I just didn't have a, a great grasp of, of how large this was. And um, But she was there as an emotional support for the, the tour guide who actually came and still met us even though she had lost friends in that building. And it was just a moment for my mom where she was just feeling called to, to serve and help in whatever way she could. A calling that you picked up. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, it's interesting because I it wasn't initial for me in sort of picking this up. I thought I'd go into politics or government. but And you did for a time, working for the Department of Interior. Yes, I worked at the Interior Department for seven years. But when I moved back to Denver, I realized... I just this was very much so an important calling for me and and working with individuals who are going through something like this is is something where I felt intuitively I I needed I needed to go. In just the last few seconds, Jordan Finnegan, how do you take care of yourself in a job like this? A lot of yoga. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um and friends. Friends are very important um in order to just sort of have that time to to talk about what's happening and feel that support. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. Jordan Finnegan leads the Colorado Healing Fund, which is collecting donations now for the mass shootings in Boulder and Colorado Springs. The nonprofit is guided by a board that includes a former state attorney general and the longtime principal of Columbine High School. If you are writing a check to the Colorado Healing Fund, you can note in the memo section which tragedy you'd like to direct the funds to. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I hope that you get news that tells you, hey, this is what my elected representative is doing in D.C., and I needed to know that. Or, wow, that's interesting. (laughs) I didn't know that my elected representative was doing this. Public affairs reporter Caitlin Kim, based in Washington, D.C. You send them there to represent your district or the state of Colorado, and ultimately you. What are they doing in your name? I think this is all information you need to know, and I hope my reporting helps provide some of that. Listen for the work of the CPR Newsroom every day here on CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Morner. The latest issue of Time Magazine features a work of art, a mother holding her daughter. It's titled God Bless the Child by Jordan Castile, who's from Denver, part of a special project from Time called Visions of Equity. Castile uses art to understand individual people as well as her own experiences, something we spoke about in 2019 before her big debut at the Denver Art Museum. The beautiful part about being a painter is that I get to evolve with the practice and the practice gets to become reflective of the things that I'm thinking about. So there have been some small crop paintings happening in my studio, which are um, indicative of my commute in New York and on the subways. So they've been capturing people's hands and their gestures, um, their clothing. It's a way for me to dig into a more abstract relationship with painting. I get to just paint and play with color that they don't hold the same weight or pressure 
um, intellectually, perhaps for me, as the larger scale as a full portrait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Which, when you say a crop, you mean the hands are cropped. So that's the image. Yep. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So when I was doing the larger portraits, I was finding instances within those big paintings that I was really um, drawn to that were really just the hands or a minute gesture or a stroke of color that caught my interest. So I thought, how do I make that a painting in and of itself? You know, my stepmother um, is an artist, was an artist, and she talked about how notoriously difficult hands are to get right. Mm, Yes. Is that true? (laughs) Absolutely. What's kind of funny is my whole time in grad school, well, at least my first year, I was given a lot of criticism about my inability to draw hands. And it was that criticism and that pushing that really drove me to figure it out and to do hands. I was like, oh, okay, you tell me I can't. Like, wait till I can. What were your hands turning out like? Uh, Probably wonky. There's no better word than wonky. Um, (laughs) They... We're just imperfected in a traditional sense that I hadn't been formally trained in drawing, really. And so I was drawing with real expression and energy that was true to myself, but wasn't necessarily representative of um, a fine drawer in the traditional sense. You had no formal art training before applying to Yale's MFA program. No, it's crazy. That's right? wacky. It's so wacky. I, I mean, in some ways... I guess no is not completely fair in that I did take painting classes while I was at Agnes Scott College. I also took my first oil painting class my junior year in college when I studied abroad in Italy. And that's where I was like, oh, my goodness, I love painting. But when I got to Yale, I really did have to kind of start from the bottom and scrounge my way to the top that I had never stretched a canvas before. I had never... Uh, picked out paintbrushes and knew the differences between a sable or a bristol brush. And I just had to ask a lot of questions. I was a learner at Yale, and I think being a learner ultimately allowed me to um, succeed and to graduate. And um, <laughs> thank goodness that happens. <laughs> Let's talk about some of your images of Denver. Yeah. What, does Denver, like your first muse? Oh, absolutely. I think... Denver is my first muse because it is ingrained. I was born at Rose Hospital, that I literally have um, occupied the streets of Denver from the moment that I was born until I was 18 years old. The Denver community has kind of seeped into my being. And so the paintings of people in Denver felt very obvious and so obvious that I didn't do it for a long time. Um, I was painting people in grad school that were my community members there. But once I got to New York, I was thinking a lot about home um, and coming back home and painting the people that I loved here. Yeah, describe a Denver painting for us. Yeah. So, for example, I'm going to get my hair cut by Marcus this afternoon. So the painting of Marcus and Jay's is a pretty special one. He is sitting next to his son who is asleep um, where in his barbershop. So I went to his barbershop. I wanted to do this portrait of him and his son. We couldn't wake up his son to save our lives. We were both like poking and prodding at his son. And eventually I said, you know what, Marcus, just put your arm around him. We're just going to go with it. And I think it's a really tender moment that we ultimately ended up capturing. The sun was setting. You see the kind of light cutting across his face. You see on the background all the pennants of the schools that people bring him to put on the walls of the barbershop. And one of those pennants is of Yale, which I brought back for him. Um, And he 
has been somebody, Marcus in particular, took me to prom, has been in my life for many, many years. And I gave him a call two days ago when I started to scramble and said, I think I need a haircut. Can you help me out? Just more about your background. Your grandfather was civil rights activist Whitney Moore Young Jr. Uh, He was head of the National Urban League, an advocate for racial integration, particularly in the workplace. He died before you were born, but I wonder how you've absorbed his legacy of social justice as an artist. Yeah, so I think his image and him as my grandfather was really prominent in my upbringing, but not in a in a way that felt as if I needed to carry a torch as his granddaughter. It was more about how do I live um, in the values that he has shared with my mother that I never personally got from him, but has got have gotten through my mother as a result. Your mother, Lauren Castile, who yes. has been described as the Oprah of Denver. Yes, by me, which she might be horrified okay. by. Why do you call her the Oprah of Denver? Um, Because she's fabulous. I mean, she is such a powerhouse in her own right. She has worked in philanthropy my entire life. She used to have her own TV show. We joke that Right now, as I walk down the street with her, you would think, based off this exhibition, that people would maybe be stopping me. But in fact, they're stopping her. And then um, <laughs> then they pass me on as a result. And she says, oh, and by the way, my daughter, she's getting ready for this exhibition. And so the legacy is something that you carry with you. It sounds like you don't feel burdened by it. No, not at all. I think... And I think my parents did a really wonderful job, in particular my mother, in making sure that we understood that it is about walking the walk, um, not just talking the talk. So doing the work in my day-to-day life and embodying. And what um, does that look like? For me, that looks like telling the stories and getting people to see people that they might not have seen before, to slowing people down and creating literal space. So my grandfather, as you said, was interested in diversifying the workplace and really bringing inclusion to the workplace. And if you think about who we walk by on the street on a day-to-day basis, we are, um, I think, very frequently walking past people that we could have an opportunity to say hello to and might have actually more similarities and differences that we would perceive on first instinct. So the paintings are my way of slowing people down and making room for others and, and living with them as a result. You literally, on the street, stop people and talk to them. Yes. And have the awkward request of, can I paint you? <laughs> yes. Which, yeah. you know, in a, in a particular setting could be quite creepy. Yes, it is. Like I think in most you. settings it is. I think about if the tables were turned and somebody did what I did to people, um, whether or not I would say yes. So oftentimes it looks like me walking up to somebody and saying, hi, my name is Jordan. That's like the simple start. Uh-huh. Um, and then saying, and I'm a painter and I am working on this project. Do you have a minute to kind of listen to what it is that I'm working on and seeing if you would be interested in participating? And I You've show done this images. in Harlem. I've done this in Harlem. I did it through email at Yale. I have done it with my students. I Every kind of different community I've occupied. And when people say no, is it just that they're pressed for time? I haven't gotten many no's, oh if I'm goodness. honest. I know. It's crazy. It's baffling to me every time um, that... I can't even recall a moment where somebody has said no. So describe for me one of the Harlem paintings. 
the one that I love talking about the most was the first that I made or the first person that I photographed when I was a resident at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Because you, that's how you start the process is yeah. photographing. I photographed the subjects and I it was the first time that I made the decision to approach people I didn't know or have a connection to somehow. So I walked out on the street in Harlem and I was walking past Sylvia's restaurant and there, which is a... Kind of an institution of... of Gospel, yep. and soul food. Soul food. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was walking by there and there was a young man, young old man, James, was sitting out front selling CDs. The sun was shining so beautifully on him. And I walked past him at first. And then I had this whole internal dialogue where I was like, you just made a huge mistake. You have to go back right now. And I turned around and I said, hi, James, my name is Jordan. And I was wondering if I could take your portrait. I'm trying to get you on the walls of the museum. I explained what Studio Museum was and what my goals were. And when he saw his painting for the first time, it was a pretty remarkable moment because he thought it was going to be a little drawing or something. So he stood in front of his painting and he said, oh, my God, I thought this was going to be a little drawing or something. I have to go get my wife. What was the scale? The scale was probably six foot by five foot at least. So they're big. He had to look up at himself. Uh Um, And that experience was clearly a profound one. So what year was that? That was in 2015. 2015. It's so quaint to be selling CDs. Yes. What's the story behind that? Well, in Harlem, the entrepreneurship that happens on the street is unbelievable. So a lot of vendors set up shop on uh, Linux Avenue and sell a wide range of things such as CDs, such as maybe hats and scarves, such as... um, I don't know, Glass Goods, Glassman Mike, who is somebody else I painted. There was Charles, who's going to be in the exhibition, and he sold furs that he would make in Canada and bring down and sell on the corner of 125th and Lenox. Mm. Um, so there's a real culture of entrepreneurship. What is it that you like about portraiture in particular? Like, do you always imagine your paintings will have a person in them? In some capacity, I always imagine that the paintings would represent my day-to-day life and and the things and the people that were around me. So portraiture and painting is just my way of slowing down and getting to know people at my own pace. And I do think in the earliest phases of my painting practice, I was doing self-portraits. When I was in Italy, I was painting the staff and my classmates. So it's always been just about my environment. More that than like a bowl of fruit. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Although bowls of fruit have been painted. I have done that. (laughs) Is it important to make people look good? I think that's the bigger question of looking good. How do we define what looking good is? Our perceptions of beauty, our perceptions of safety or comfort or familiarity. What's most important to me is to capture the essence of the people that I'm painting. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Painter Jordan Castile was born and raised in Denver. Her art was recently showcased by the Denver Art Museum, which then bought two of her works. Her painting, God Bless the Child, is featured on the cover of Time for the magazine's special project, Visions of Equity. Castile and I spoke in 2019. The other day, we told you that the first Thai restaurant in the U.S. opened in Denver in the early 1960s. Lily Chitavej was the proprietor of Chata Thai, 
And our story knocked some memories loose for listener Irene Clerman of Evergreen. She recalls eating at Chada in the 1970s. Chada Thai was an oasis at a time when Denver was mainly a steak and potatoes town. Lily, the owner, would take our orders herself. After listing a few traditional Thai dishes, she would add, or you can leave it to Lily. Leave it to Lily, my friends and I would chorus, and she would go into the kitchen to make whatever she felt like making that day. It was always wonderful. If my memory serves me, Leave It to Lily became an actual listing on the printed menu. We cooked from Lily Chittavedge's cookbook in our series, The Kitchen Shelf. And our guest, Holly Arnold Kinney, was close with the family, went to Chada as a kid. And so it was especially painful when this happened just prior to our interview. My dog, Frenchie, she had gotten up on the counter, got the cookbook, and ate half of the book. Well, some good news. Lily's daughter-in-law phoned Holly saying she has multiple copies and would be happy to spare one. Catch the latest episode of The Kitchen Shelf with a recipe for crab curry noodles at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.